Good morning. Uh, so this morning, uh, if you uh, were aware, we're looking at David and Goliath. Uh, now, you might be thinking that's a pretty random story to, to come to based on what we've been going through before. Uh, so back in August and over the summer, we were going through John, uh, and then Martin started our series in Jeremiah that's just finished, uh, and last week we were in Acts and the Gospel. And so it seems kind of random to put this story of David and Goliath into, into what we are hearing. I just want to explain uh, why we are looking at it. Uh, it's basically because uh, as Christians, as people in this church, we believe that we want to have a pretty balanced diet of the Bible. We believe that it is all useful and essential for us and our growth. And so to kind of balance out our, our understanding, our eating of the Bible, I want to make sure we're taking in from a wide range of books, a wide range of genres, and an Old Testament story uh, fits into our balanced diet with that. Uh, with that in mind, if you have a Bible, please turn to 1 Samuel 17, uh, and we'll read the story. Uh, we're not going to read all of it. Uh, we'll read from verses 33 to 51. That's 1 Samuel 17. Uh, if you have one of the church Bibles, it's page 240. Uh, it's also on the screen uh, if you don't have a Bible with you. And Saul said to David, You are not able to go against this Philistine to fight him, for you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor, and he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand as he approached the Philistine, and the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield-bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me. And I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I will strike you down and cut off your heads, and I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth 
may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David's, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine in the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on the face, his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword, drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. Amen. Uh, this story of David and Goliath is probably one of the most well-known and often referenced of the whole Bible. Uh, I did a little bit of research in asking one of my friends who doesn't know Jesus and Googling to find out what are the most famous Bible stories that are out there. And there were two that regularly ranked above David and Goliath. Does anybody want to have a guess as to what one of those two might be? Oh, Noah's Ark came just below, unfortunately. Jonah also came below. Oh, not Jesus' birth. But maybe his new birth. Uh, Jesus' death and resurrection was number one, thankfully. Number two? Yeah, creation. Um, and so out of those stories... Uh, this one, uh, maybe third world best, best known or whatever, but it's probably the most loved out of those. Uh, creation people might uh, hear about it, but they probably think it's all a load of rubbish. But people love to hear David and Goliath stories. Uh, and we frame a lot of battles that we see, particularly in sports or whatever, as David versus Goliath. Uh, I've prepared just like uh, three pictures of famous David v. Goliath in sports. Uh, so the first one, this is Leicester in 2016. Uh, the year before, Leicester were almost relegated from the Premier League. Uh, and then this season, against all the odds, the odds were 5,000 to 1. They managed to win the league, toppling teams that have a budget of hundreds of millions of pounds and winning it. The second uh, is from this year, Emma Raducanu. Uh, she qualified for the US Open, uh, and she managed to win the whole thing at only the age of 18. Uh, and the third one is more recent, and some of you were able to watch this live. Uh, this is a few weeks ago, Scotland managing to overcome Tonga. <laughs> we absolutely love David and Goliath stories. And part of why we love them is that we love to imagine ourselves in the shoes of the Davids. We imagine ourselves with this big foe against us, a seemingly impossible task, perhaps, and we think how amazing it would be if we were able to come out on top. Or we might think currently about any giants that we might be facing. And we'd love to manage to get one over on our a boss that we don't like. Or a spouse whenever they're annoying. And while it's all well and good, kind of imagining ourselves as David in these scenarios. When we translate that across directly to this story, we can enter into dangerous territory. As we read the Bible, as we read stories like this of David and Goliath, we aren't meant to come away from this thinking we are the hero of the story. 
Before we really dive into it, I want us to, to think more generally about how we're to read stories like this in the most faithful and helpful way. Uh, you may have heard, uh, it's pretty viral in some Christian circles, uh, of an American pastor, Matt Chandler, preaching on this passage. Uh, there's a clip uh, where with real vigor, he, he cries out to the congregation, you are not David's. He's really aware of the danger to read this story or so many other Bible stories and come away thinking, I can fix everything if I'm good enough. That my destiny is in my own hands. That if I have enough faith, all these giants will fall. But there's also a danger and Chandler later admitted to kind of going a bit too far with this, of putting these biblical human figures like David on some kind of pedestal. And we would forget that these people are, like us, real people with real faults. But David is not some abstract figure that we are not to aspire to. We are meant to look at David's and aspire to be people also of great faith and confidence in the Lord. So if we were to take one good principle, that you are not David approach, and hold it up at the expense of any other principle we come to as we read a story like this, uh, then we get into danger. Uh, So you remember uh, that rule you learn in primary school, I before E except after C. It helps you spell a lot of words, but if you hold that up as the only rule, you're going to spell a lot of words wrong. It's a good and helpful principle, but to be applied, it has to be applied with balance. As we come to this story, hearing the words, you are not David, is helpful, but it has to be done within a wider framework for reading this. That's not just to say we get to read scripture however we want and any reading of it can be useful. Uh, That's why uh, one of the reformers, John Calvin, uh, helpfully taught us how to think about Old Testament stories and the law. He came up uh, with this threefold use of the law. By law, he's speaking more widely than just the laws we read in Leviticus, but he's speaking uh, to the whole Old Testament. And he has three uses, three uh, principles that help guide us uh, as we study Old Testament stories. The first is that we read these stories like a mirror. This mirror on one level reflects God to us. And we see something of God's righteousness, his goodness, love, and perfection. At the same time, this mirror reflects back to us and reveals our own sinfulness and rebellion. Uh, His other relevant use for this story is that it teaches us to do and exhorts us to do what is right. Uh, So as we dig in, uh, we're going to come to the story with those things in mind. How does this story reveal like a mirror our sinfulness? How does this story like a mirror reveal God's goodness? And how does this story call us to act going forward? The story begins before what I read today. I know it will be familiar, but I want to just go over a bit of it. 
And so you have these two nations, the Israelites and the Philistines. They're encamped against each other, waiting to do battle. The Philistines, uh, through Goliath, they suggest a a proxy war. Uh, One man from one army and one man from another will fight. And that fight uh, will determine the victory of the whole nations. The nation that wins that fight, that 1v1, uh, will have the other nation become their servants. And so the Philistines put forward Goliath. Uh, a man who, who different manuscripts describe differently is either nine foot nine or six foot five. Either way, he's a huge bloke, and he has huge heavy armor, and he comes out and he regularly taunts the people of Israel. And so they're at a kind of stalemate. No one from Israel is brave enough to go out and face Goliath. And so they stand at odds for 40 days, and then David's. The youngest and smallest of eight sons goes to visit his brothers who are waiting on the battle line. He hears about what is going on, about what Goliath is teasing the Israelites about. And he also hears that there is a prize on offer for the one who would defeat Goliath. The prize on offer uh, from King Saul is great riches. There's also the gift of the king's daughter, And the promise that whoever slays Goliath, their father's house will not have to pay any taxes. And then like all older brothers, David's brothers become frustrated at David hanging about them. And they basically tell him to go home. But David is offended that this uncircumcised Philistine is taunting God's people. So he stays and he volunteers to fight. And that's where we get to where the reading started. And so if we want to ask, answer that question of how does this passage, like a mirror, reveal to us our sinfulness and rebellion, we see the sinfulness all the way through of the different characters. So that first group, we have the Israelites. Now they are not described a whole deal in this story, They're actually only described twice, and it's exactly the same way. So verse 11, uh, Goliath is taunting them. And these people are described as dismayed and greatly afraid. And then in verse 24 again, they are described as afraid. And the fact that King Saul is having to offer that great prize of riches, uh, of a wife, uh, of not having to pay taxes shows that none of them could be motivated out of good reasons, out of a love for country, out of a defense of God's people. In fact, the only time the Israelite army actually go and do anything is once the victory is already done. Uh, After uh, our reading finished, they go and plunder the Philistines after Goliath is dead. These trained warriors, grown men, who are there to fight for their country, are completely useless. And so afraid and weak that they let a teenager fight in their place. In the face of a great enemy, they are paralyzed by fear. The second group are the Philistines and Goliath. They taught and persecute the people of God. And verse 43, Goliath curses David by his false gods. 
The third group or person is King Saul. Saul the king, the powerful man of Israel, who is described as having the people of Israel as his servants. But Saul completely misunderstands who David is. So he tries to put his huge armor on David, a young boy. He expects that David is volunteering to try and win this battle by a kind of military victory. Not realizing that David's victory will not be by strength, by spear or sword, but by the gift of God. And at the end of the chapter, again this is after our reading finished, Saul asks David, who are you? And who is your father? Now, on the face of it, we might not think anything of it. But the chapter before, 1 Samuel 16, we read that David played the harp regularly for Saul. And we, are, we read that Saul loved him greatly, and David became his armor bearer. And Saul even knew who David's father was and sent a letter to him. But at the end of this story, Saul, for whatever reason, out of jealousy or ignorance or deliberately reject, deliberate rejection, has completely lost sight of David's identity, of the identity of God's servant. And I think across a room of this size, you'll hear uh, about those characters and see something on some level that you'll identify with. Perhaps you feel yourself like one of the Israelites who is facing trial and in the face of those trials is completely paralyzed by fear. Perhaps you uh, hear or you just see in your day-to-day the decline in the church in Scotland of how on many fronts the enemy seems to be winning here. Or perhaps there's a relationship you're in that has broken down to the point where you really don't think that there's going to be any reconciliation. Or perhaps it's just day-to-day life has all seemed to become too much. And that making it to next week with any kind of smile on your face seems like too big an ask. Perhaps, like the Israelites, hope seems so far away. Or perhaps you're listening to this and you wouldn't call yourself one of God's people. Now, if you're in church this morning, you probably wouldn't be the sort to persecute and taunt God's people like Goliath. But it is so true that all who don't know Jesus stand on the opposite side of him. And that all of us before becoming a Christian were those who stood on the opposite side to Jesus. This battle didn't have any UN neutral peacekeepers there. People with one foot on either side trying to make sure everything's okay. With God there can be no fence sitters. There are those who are alive in Christ and will remain so. And there are those who stand dead in sin. Or perhaps like Saul, you'd say you were once a lot closer to God than you seem now. At the end of the previous chapter, we read that the Lord's Spirit had departed from Saul. 
And you might feel that forever, for whatever reason now, your heart just seems so much harder to what God is doing in the world and in your life. And some of these responses are caused by our own sin, our own rejection of God. And some are the unfortunate consequences of living in a world marred by sin. But to all those characters, to however you feel, to whoever you identify with, the hope is exactly the same. The hope for them and for us is that God would intervene in a special way. The hope is that God would send a savior to his people. And so there we have the fourth character, David. David has no fear for his own life, but willingly puts it on the line for his people. There's nothing physically about David that would make him the prime candidate for battle, but quite the opposite. He can't even manage to wear any kind of armor. His weapons are just some stones he found in a nearby brook. Uh, Somehow, he does manage to convince Samuel to remind everybody in verse 42 that he is handsome. But as he approaches the battle, he approaches with amazing confidence He cries out that the Lord will give him the victory. And so as as David and Goliath approach each other, David flings one stone. And the only unprotected spot on Goliath was that bit right between uh, the, the eyes. The rest would have been coated in armor, no way for a stone to penetrate it. But David flings the stone and kills him. Uh, You'll notice, uh, if you're listening closely, uh, that the passage says that the stone kills him. But then David runs over, grabs Goliath's sword, and kills him. Uh, There's loads of uh, debate, and probably far too intense debate, about at what point he actually dies. But we see, regardless, a powerful picture of David beheading Goliath with Goliath's own sword. A picture of how God takes the strongest weapons of the enemy and turns them against themselves. And so David has the victory. The unstoppable, unsurmountable enemy is defeated. But we cannot place our hope in this, David. David saved his people, but David will not save you. David went on to do some great things, He also went on to do some truly wicked things. And David eventually died. You can't run today to David with your problems. You can't say today that David fights for you. But David points us to the one who does fight for you. David points us to the one who does save you. Earlier I mentioned that this mirror reflects our sinfulness back to us. And we've seen that in the Israelites, Philistines, and Saul. But this mirror also reflects God's goodness to us. This mirror reflects God's goodness as David points us towards God. And this God not just being some kind of abstract, abstract, helpful, uh, saving God... 
but towards a personal savior. David points us to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the true and better David's. Jesus Christ saw a struggling, destitute people in great needs and came down to earth to be with them. Now, hear how Jesus' mission is described in Matthew 9. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. David was a shepherd who left his sheep to save his people. Jesus is the one who left his home in heaven to be the good shepherd to a helpless people. And the narrative around the battle, if you were to picture it, is the same too. Uh, So imagine that battle between David and Goliath before it starts. You have David small, with no armor or good weapons standing there. And opposite him, you have this monumental giant, coated head to toe in armor. And if you froze there, it looks like the battle is already lost. There is no way that this outcome could be a good one. And then fast forward and picture Jesus praying alone in the garden. So worried was he about his fate that he sweats drops of blood. Armed guards come and take him away. He is tried in court in a fixed trial. He is flogged mercilessly and given a crown of thorns. His hands and his feet are nailed to planks of wood, and he's hoisted into the air next to two common criminals, being put to death by one of the biggest killing machines the world's ever seen. And each breath he breathes accelerates his dying. Most of those who had been his closest friends are hiding away in fear of what would happen to them. And he breathes his last breath, And the world goes completely dark for three hours. You pause the scene there and it seems like a defeat. The light of the world is extinguished. The one who breathes life has breathed his last breath. The one who came to save lies in a grave. But that death, and we celebrate this, was not a defeat. His final cry, it is finished, was not a cry of defeat, but a shout of victory. Because in that death, Jesus took all of our sin, our rejection of him, our lack of faith, and he paid the punishment for it. Jesus died that death that we, every single one of us, deserve. And like David killed Goliath with Goliath's own sword. Sin's greatest weapon, death, was defeated by Jesus dying. And three days later, Jesus emerged from the grave in victory. 
And that victory meant that sin and death are defeated. Hope remains and life without fear is possible in Jesus. David claims a victory that saved his people. A temporary victory. Further enemies would come and destroy the nation of Israel. But Jesus won a victory for all people and for all time. Not just good news for one nation, but good news for all humanity. That there is life in Jesus' name. That anyone, no matter where you're from or what your past or what your present is, can come and receive life from him and know him. So whether you've been paralyzed by fear over something or living in rejection of Jesus or struggling with every single day or worn out by COVID or beaten down by sickness or seemingly attacked from every side or tired of going nowhere or missing that intimacy with Jesus that you once had. Jesus' victory means that you can come to him and receive him. And he wants to take you just as you are and to make you whole, to make you alive in him. David won the battle, and a lot of years later, he died. After Jesus won the battle, he never died. He reigns forever. And today, he stands as your savior from sin and your refuge from the battles of life. And he will never leave this position. No sin that you do or no battle you face will be too big for him. You will never be too unlovable for Jesus. He stands today as king. The other use of the law that Calvin identified was to teach us how to act rightly. As we see how Jesus is the true and better David, we will rightly put our whole trust in him, I hope. And we'll acknowledge that every victory that we see is his victory. But there's a a tendency and a danger to, to get complacent and just think, okay, I'm not really like David, and to then be satisfied with being a bumbling Israelite or a backsliding Saul. This passage teaches us to act rightly and that it calls us to follow and be like to be like David's to follow his example. David did not approach this battle out of some with confidence because he was so strong or because he was foolish. He approached it because he was confident that the Lord was with him. As Christians today, the same Lord that won that ultimate victory, raising Jesus from the dead, is the Lord who lives in us. The Lord in whose presence we worship this morning. And this spirit given to us is not a spirit of fear. It's a spirit that means that any situation we come across, how desperate it seems, we can cry out and in thanks that our God has got this. It is a spirit that makes it possible for us to call him our Father in heaven. A spirit who comforts us in despair. But it would be really dangerous 
to take that and think or say that because Jesus has won the victory, the ultimate victory, all your problems and battles are going to disappear. And I know as a church family, we know this, and we know this too well. Because we know that there are some battles that don't seem to, to get won. We know that the message of an all clear from the doctor might never actually come. And we know that the meds that people have to take for depression might just remain. We know that that friend that you pleaded with to become a Christian might never come. We know that that friend you wronged might never forgive you. That that financial debt might never be wiped out. That the dream job may never happen. That real friends may never appear. That loneliness might never go away. That sin will remain. But Jesus' victory does mean that he is making a new heavens and a new earth where all of this sickness and sadness and death will have no part. Jesus' victory means that all who trust in him will be with him forever in that new heavens and new earth. Jesus' victory means that nothing and no one can ever pluck you out of his loving hands. And so Jesus, the victor, calls you to come. Leave your sin behind. Trust in him and what he has done. And receive life to the full in him. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much that the battle belongs to you. The battle against sin. The battle against everyday life. Lord, thank you that you have won. And that you bid us to come to you. To receive life in your name. That by the death of Jesus, our sin is paid for. That by his resurrection, we are given new life in you. Lord, help us approach each day with confidence. And an eager anticipation for the new world to come. Of eternity spent with you in your arms. Amen.